Hi, my name is Jules Hamilton and this is Keeping It Good, The Good Summer Podcast. I have the real pleasure today of speaking with Professor Anne Nolan, who is Professor of Global Health in Trinity College and Director of the Master's Programme in Global Health. Anne is one of those rare people that has such a, a warmth and energy and real social appreciation uh, in the world of academia and that's because she came to it late and actually worked in the field for government, for NGOs, she worked with UNICEF, she worked with UN AIDS, she has run AIDS organisations, she has worked for the Department of Foreign Affairs in Ireland and through all of those years of practice of being in the field of making policy, she then moved into academia. She's an incredible human. She has incredible wisdom and knowledge. And it was so good of her to share that passion and to share that knowledge with us in this podcast. I really hope that you enjoy the conversation and indeed you are inspired by this conversation as much as I was. Let's get into it. Oh my goodness, Professor Anne Nolan, it is so good to see you and to have you on the Good Summer podcast. And thank you for that smile, which people can't see, but it is so good to be in conversation with you this afternoon. Oh, thank you, Jill. The privilege is all mine. Like, thank you, sir. The thanks rather is all mine. Oh, that came out so wrong. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> This is what we're doing. We're having the giggles. We're having a laugh. We're having a conversation. It is. It's just brilliant. And listen, let's launch in. You, it, it's. I hate it whenever I say things like this because every other professor in Trinity College will go, "He what?" But but really, you are one of my favorite professors in Trinity College. Oh, so, and I'll tell you why. You're so earthed. You're like you're really real. And any time that we talk um, and have a conversation, it, it, it's it's just you know you know what you're at, and you're and you're honest and you're real about it. And no disrespect to academia, but not every academic that you come across is earthed uh, and seems <laughs> real. But I'm I'm really interested. I'm really interested. How did you get here? And who are you? What brought you to where you are now? Tell us your story. Thanks for asking me, Jules. It's lovely to be asked who you are. So few people ask anymore. Well, I, I, in terms of academia, I think I'm, you know, very much a, an accidental academic. You know, I came, I have a professional background in, in development and international development and policy formation, really. Um, and uh, joined academia in uh, just, gosh, it's three years ago this month, actually. Um in which I, I I had educated myself at nighttime, and I, wow. I I suppose I just I had this great dream of, you know, that working in an academic institution would be just the most incredible experience. I'm not sure I found that. I'm not sure I've made the right decision, but I'm here, and trying to make the best of it. Um, who am I? I was born in 1967 into quite a, you know, working class family in, in Phippsburg in a very different Ireland. I suppose it was, you know, a very, my father would have, he was raised by his own grandfather. So he had those very old fashioned values of, you know, duty and loyalty. And, um, you know, my mother's metaphor was always something like that, you know, when we go to other people's houses, you don't ever take the, the chocolate biscuit or, you know, you always take 
the plain thing is for you or you say no thank you because everybody else is more important than you are wow um, uh, you know i think that that was a fundamental and incredibly important lesson in my formative years and then i think religion was hugely important in my early life as well because you know my home home life was was very tr- deeply troubled actually and my parents separated at a time in ireland where that was frowned upon and so there was a lot of stigma of being a child as one parish priest described me as a child from a delinquent background because i came from a, a separated home um, But faith was hugely important to me. And I think it was a time as well of social justice movements. And, you know, also I would say, you know, the Catholic Church gets a huge knocking. I no longer, I mean, I would describe myself as an atheist now, but I look, you know, lots of people had very, very different experiences of the Catholic faith. But I was extremely fortunate in the sense that the women that I met uh, as a young person, were, you know, they were feminists, they were individual thinkers, they were incredibly supportive. And I had a hugely positive experience with both the Holy Faith nuns and the Loretta nuns, whom I believe gave me an excellent education and an excellent grounding in, in kind of, you know, what for me are really core principles of kindness and justice and, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. living a good life mm-hmm. while also being mindful of the needs of others and of challenging yourself. I mean, these women were, I suppose the nuns for a lot of women growing up in Ireland was the only way that you could live an independent and slightly different life to getting married and raising children. Um, and those women were extraordinary and I'm so grateful for them. I, 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 I really am. And I'd love to be able to go back and I, I keep in touch with one of them and just say, you know, thank you for all that. Well, well, well did, that take, did that take into a particular line of work? You know, those values, that sense of community, that sense of belonging and, and we're all in this together. You mentioned, uh, you, you mentioned that you, um, or maybe it was whenever we were off air, actually talking about your work in the Department of Foreign Affairs, but you, meant, you mentioned uh, going into NGO work and so forth. Yes, when I, when I went to start a professional life, it was into uh, working in NGOs became the, the focus of that. Now, I, I, I had never gone to college, you know, it just wasn't part of the, the narrative of my growing up for girls. Um, and, and where I grew up, kind of the expectations of me were quite different that from my brothers. My brothers were expected to get an education. I was expected to be the one to marry and have a clatter of kids and then to look after all the old people in my life. So I think a lot of my elderly relatives see me as a bit of a waster, actually. But, um, yes. you know, because I did... Professor from Trinity College, <laughs> Professor of Global Health. Yeah, yeah, waster. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah, so I, I, I put myself through college at night. It was really difficult, uh, difficult. I think at the time I was working in administration and working five days a week. And then UCD ran the first ever night degree um, available four nights a week over four years. And that experience absolutely transformed my life. It was just so exciting to be educated. And like, it's like, 
being able to see the world anew and to understand what maybe I was feeling and put a language to what I felt about injustice and, you know, uh, I, I suppose it never made sense to me on a logical level why we valued some people and not others. Like, yeah. what is that? Like, it's, it's values and morals and politics and ideology. And they just belong to a certain group of people. They can always be changed, always be changed. And we can, history tells us that. Um, okay, stop. You, you need to say that again. So, you know, go, go back and say and say that again. And did you say, you know, what is it that, that really causes us to be so distant from each other? Some people are valued and others are not. And why is that? And this was my philosophical journey, if you like, you know, that there's no good reason apart from politics, ideology, morals and values. And these are always changed. You know, we hear people say all the time, oh, that's just the way it is. Part of the world is incredibly poor and people live on less than a a dollar a day. Oh, that's just the way it is. Academia is a a very toxic environment or that's just the, that's just the system. That is just the way it is. And my attitude to that is no, actually it isn't. So have we made it. And so can we unmake it, you know? um, uh, And and I think that's very important to it, to understand historically that, you know, we have always had dominant values and ways of thinking and doing things. And these have been opposed by a minority of people who eventually become pushed back and become the majority themselves, do you know, and bring about change. That's fair. I don't underestimate that. It's not for everyone. And it's very often a very difficult process. But I believe fundamentally that we have a duty to each other to realise the best possible life for everyone around us. Why should I and my children have everything they want and need, but not somebody somewhere else? That for me, it's about logic. I don't understand that. It makes no sense to me. I, see, I, I think that's because of the heart and soul that you have, uh, which, which I think is, is just amazing and beautiful to have to have a professor in, in the academic world who speaks about she she got to where she was because she actually looked around and said, why, why should my children and my people and my tribe have that? And others do not, you know, and and actually care enough to ask the right questions and well, well to ask better questions and seek better questions still uh, that's really in- inspiring for me to hear that thank you. you you take me to that point of you know the, the thought that if the world as it is has been imagined and you know it has been created by us and if the world was imagined it can be reimagined absolutely um, that's, absolutely that's, that's totally exactly. what the good summit is about common good and um, does that is is what you were just saying is that what common good is to you or whenever we say you know common good to a, a professor of global health what what are the things that come to mind um, i suppose it's very hard for me to hear that phrase at the moment common good without thinking of the that first of all, the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. And secondly, about the Algerian French philosopher, Albert Camus, and his work from 1947 called The Plague, okay, um, in which there's yes. an outbreak. 
in which there's an outbreak of disease in, in this unspecified region uh, in Algeria. And the public health specialist who's responding to it at the end of the novel uh, describe, you know, he says, really, you know, how do you kind of defeat, uh, you know, the plague? Uh, and he says the only way to fight a plague is through decency. And somebody asked the character, the protagonist, Dr. Rue, well, what does that mean? What does decency mean? And he says, well, it's doing my job, you know, it's doing my, it's back to my father's old fashioned you know, now widely dismissed, almost kind of uh, uh, roadmap for life, duty, you know, decency, kindness, yeah. goodness. Wow. Um, these, just these very human traits that, you know, is, about, is fundamentally about grace and how we coexist with each other in any society community or family that you you bring compassion to all of your your interactions with others and that means people who are close to you but also those who are not and i think when i when i think about the way that we've responded to the covid-19 pandemic i feel that that's actually what's missing is common good is missing from the that common decency. So what Camus and, uh, and Dr. Rue identifies in 1947, I think our neoliberal world has almost turned that on its head and decided somehow that it's all right for those who are richer and more privileged to be able to protect their lives and the lives of their children. But it's not okay and we don't we think it's perfectly fine for equivalent people health workers old people old vulnerable people and and children in developing and low income contexts not to be protected and there are 3 billion of them wow. um, that we have decided uh, we, we don't need to show any common decency too. And wow. I have a huge problem with that. Yeah. How can that be okay with any of us? This podcast is proudly supported by the amazing folks at Thought Collective, a team of designers and developers who create brands and digital products to captivate the crowd and communicate effectively. They make the Good Summit look great. Check them out at www.thoughtcollective.com. I hear in the news, and I understand that this is what was going to happen. You know, the, the US presidents that we've had during the COVID crisis, the, the British prime ministers we've had, uh, you know, the Taoiseachs, the world leaders have been saying, yeah, we have we have to uh, we have to kind of give the vaccine around the world. Are you are you telling us that that just didn't happen and hasn't happened yet? It's not happened. 
Absolutely not. So, you know, uh, throughout the world, now Ireland has a very high level of vaccination. So over 90% of our, so it's like mid 90% of our population is vaccinated. If you take that on a global scale, globally, 70% of the world is vaccinated. In low income countries in Africa, so in Ireland's partner countries, countries that we have engaged with on a partnership level over decades, 11% of their population is vaccinated. We have in excess of 300% of vaccinations either ordered or in our hands currently, more than we need to vaccinate our own population. And most of the poorest countries in the world don't even have enough for their population to vaccinate their population. We are way off the WHO targets for realising and distributing vaccines to low-income countries or ending the pandemic. Those three billion people who are currently unvaccinated in our world, because of their poverty, because of the accident of their birth, are basically the, the barrier to ending this pandemic for all of us. So if you even take right, wrong, morality, ethics, common decency, common good out of it, science dictates that we absolutely have to vaccinate everyone if we're ever going to get on top of this. So, you know, there's a whole raft of reasons why we should make it an absolute priority. But the problem is, you know, is that we are putting, you know, our own values, our own sense of our own importance, our our absence, our our lost relationship with common good. Yeah. Before science and science in this instant instance is the common good. It's synonymous with the common good. Yeah. And this is this is uh, delightful. It's really challenging to to hear you, um, and and I hope our listeners kind of receive that challenge. It, it's it's absolutely deadly. Can can I literally? Um, can I ask you? You know, on on the back of that, what what is it in the in the global health? Or would actually no? I want I want to ask you a technical question first because you would know you you you've been involved uh, in government and in NGOs. Uh, with with the HIV uh, pandemic um, years now, recently I I was told uh, and this is somebody that I used to know. Uh, I don't know them very well. I, I, I certainly have a lot of respect for them. But this is somebody who was HIV positive, and um, or is HIV positive, and kind of sent out a message that after so many years of treatment and so forth, he, he wasn't infectious anymore. And uh, does that that now? Being being my age and being brought up uh, with AIDS and HIV, that just sounded incredible and amazingly positive news. Incredible, is, but is, is that true? <laughs> it's true. It's it, it, yeah. Wow. So our antiretroviral treatments are now so effective at suppressing the HIV virus that undetectable levels of virus in the blood is equal to untransmissible. Wow. Wow. So we haven't got a vaccine for HIV, but the treatments are so effective 
that it, it, it's what's called U equals U. Undetectable viral load means that you are untransmissible, um, even with unprotected uh, sex. And, and, and as you know, we grew up in an era, uh, you know, in the 1980s where everybody was terrified of HIV. And that's yeah. all of my PhD research, my, all my work. I was director, executive director of Dublin AIDS Alliance, um, a community HIV project before that, then went to work in, in the Overseas Development Assistance Programme Irish Aid at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, also working in HIV and then for the UN system, also working for around HIV. So yeah, I mean, this is groundbreaking. It is groundbreaking and it's incredible. And Connie, you know, again, back to COVID-19, you know, you had the pharmaceuticals when it came to making the, the antiretroviral know-how resisted um, any kind of generic formulations of antiretroviral treatments on the basis that it would stifle innovation. And that's an, an investment in, in, in new drugs. Actually, the reverse happened in HIV. So we are making that argument again in terms of COVID-19. And again, I would say there's no evidence for that because what happened when the pharmaceutical lost their, you know, when they had to make, uh, you know, their technical know-how for a range of antiretroviral drugs available to low-income countries in the year uh, 2001. And this was something that, you know, President Clinton was fabulous. I mean, he was really a charismatic global leader and we're lacking that global leadership right now. But he really helped to make that happen. And Ireland was part of that movement as well. Um, and somehow we're not now. But what that actually meant was it, for the pharmaceuticals, what it made uh, uh, antiretroviral treatment available to low income countries at low cost. But it also allowed for new research and development of HIV treatment. So we have pre-exposure prophylaxis. So meaning that if you know you're going to be at high risk of acquiring HIV, if you're an injecting drug, if you're uh, somebody who engages in, in multiple and concurrent unprotected anal and vaginal intercourse, then you can take a course of treatment that will protect you and create a barrier to your immune system uh, wow. acquiring mm -hmm. HIV and post-exposure prophylaxis, meaning yeah. if you've been exposed to HIV, that then you can also be treated with a, a short dose of antiretroviral treatment that the chances uh, will re uh, reduce your likelihood of ever getting infected with HIV. So phenomenal developments yeah. happen when yeah. we shared our technology. Yeah, and that's exactly why uh, the people that's in power and people like you are saying, that's what we need again. That's what we learned we from the again. HIV pandemic and from the crisis, from the global crisis. Absolutely. We need to learn the lessons. And the, the only time when hate, the, the levels of new infections began to come down and uh, AIDS mortality declined coincided exactly with that change in policy. And, and, and you know what? It's even, you know, the good friend of the Good Summit, Simon Anhold, who developed a good country index. And I think I mention him nearly every podcast as, as you start looking for royalties or something. But, <laughs> but his work, which actually points out, you know, that sense of politicians 
won't do they'll only do the thing that is good for them and for their re-election and it's very understandable it's their livelihoods you know so so you you, i can totally get that but the reality is on the global scale uh countries that give more of themselves into the global world are the countries that are surviving because they're the ones who get the reputation for being good they're you know they're the ones that actually give away a bigger percentage of their GDP. They're the countries who actually have... And having worked in foreign affairs, I would say, you know, it is incredible how much traction Ireland has on that global stage. And it filled me work. I felt very privileged to work there with wonderful colleagues, Nicola Brennan and Vincent O'Neill in the Irish Aid Programme, who, you know, like absolutely, fundamentally really incredibly wonderful people um the the challenge is and everybody wants the best for our own people and uh, and of course we'd have to achieve that but i i suppose the 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 reality is that we are in this global crisis situation um, and, and our specialists in overseas development assistance would absolutely agree that we need to realise vaccine equity. Um, yeah, and, I, you know, I, I, I think understanding the difficulty for politicians is the way forward rather than berating them all the time. And this anger that we bring and public humiliation and picketing people outside their homes, it's all wrong, Jules. There's a better way to dialogue and to say we as the people want something different to happen. And we want you to do this in our name with respect and respect for the difficult role that you have. And this is fantastic. Uh, maybe, maybe just one more, uh, what well, one more kind of question as we begin to draw uh, a bit of a close. Uh, this this is superb. You're you know you're inspiring us, and certainly your journey to where you are at the minute, where you've actually you've been a practitioner, you've done the real stuff, and then you've moved. You know, and 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 you know, you've you've been making the policies, and and now you're really at that level of trying to bring education uh, up to speed with with policy and practice as well in these places. What is what what are the great things, or what are one or two of the great things that you're seeing happening in global health? And what is your advice to you know to maybe young adults? school leavers, uh, university leavers who, who actually want to make a positive difference in the world. So there's really two questions there. What's so what's something going on that's great? Certainly talking about the AIDS thing was great, but, but what, what other things are we seeing that are good? And what's your advice to people who want to make a positive difference? I think, you know, what's good, so I suppose the position I find myself in at the moment is in a university setting. And I am so, like I said, I teach my master's in global health students, but also master's in development practice and just the great integrity that young people have, the passion that they have to realise a better world for all. Um, And I think we as adults and people who are it's not that they're not adults, but, uh, you know, people who have a wider range of experience, you know, it is our, our role and our duty to encourage them in their efforts. I think I've been hope for me in this role is 
partly, you know, I have great hope. And even though I have found academia an incredibly difficult uh, environment personally, um, and, and I don't know that someone with my professional experience and background should come into an academic environment. Um, I, I don't know that that academia in Ireland is really, or Trinity maybe, is ready for someone who has a lot of experience in other fields. Um, but I know that there are fabulous people out there, out there in government, out there in the civil service, out there in the public service, in our health system, in our NGOs, wonderful people who want to realise a better world for everyone. And that gives me hope. The WHO, Mike Ryan, Dr Tedros, these people are amazing and incredible advocates for the poorest people in the world and for equity. And, you know, if I, if I was to give any guidance and I don't, you know, what kind of guidance can I give? I don't know. I'm the sum of my mistakes. I'm the, you know, I, I've, you know, I've had lots of challenges in my life. What have I learned that I can share with others? I'm all, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, kind of just uncomfortable sometimes saying what I think, but I think a better world ultimately comes down to kindness and how you engage with uh, the things that you know to be right, but informing yourself about what is right by talking with others, by engaging with others, not just listening to your own filter or echo chamber, by through collective dialogue with multiple other people, listening to the people around you, not only those who agree with you, but also those who disagree with you to challenge yourself. And then to maybe, you know, like again, my generation, what do we take inspiration from? You know, it was very often the old black and white movies on a Saturday afternoon. Um, uh, you know, one of the greats I think is 12 Angry Men with Henry Fonda and that, you know, that, that character of juror number eight who stands up and says, well, actually, I don't really just, I don't really agree with where the rest of you are coming from in your decision to convict the, the perpetrator. And of course, it's through respectful dialogue, through debate. I think debate is healthy and important. I really get concerned and it concerns me in this institution when we see it stifled and denied. We absolutely have to have vo voices of all persuasions and colours heard and a healthy debate. And those who disagree, let's absolutely have a debate. You know, the great discussions that Joyce celebrates in Ulysses and Portrait of the Artist, where, uh, you know, and I grew up with that, those family discussions around the table. Some of my family were royalists, others were nationalists. And they, you know, they debated with each other, but still all went for a pint at the end of the day in love and respect. And that's what I see lost in our academic dialogue. And I want my students to really engage with the world of difference, of perspective, and to hear all voices, and to be part of that narrative, and then to find your own voice, and to stand true to it, and not be afraid to be juror number eight around a table 
where everybody thinks you're wrong. Oh, that is just fantastic. And thank you so much. Thank you. Can, 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 we do, can we do a few quick fire one answer, one one word answers to finish with? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Your favorite food. Oh, ice cream. Favorite comedian. Favorite comedian Bring is oh uh, gosh, who is my favorite comedian? Probably Basil Fawlty. I absolutely oh, no, love Jean Cleese. Love, yeah, I absolutely love Fawlty Towers. I'm, I'm all about a free Saturday afternoon. The perfect, perfect thing to do with a free Saturday afternoon. Making bread and cakes and listening to podcasts. That's just superb. And Nolan, you're a legend. Thank you so much. Thank you for it was wonderful to talk to you and thank you for inviting me to do so today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That was the humble and just wonderful Anne Nolan, Professor of Global Health in Trinity College, Dublin. I really hope that you have been inspired by that conversation and I really hope uh, that you want to keep on going and keeping it good. So Anne, thank you so much. And also thanks to our Good Summer team, to Andy Matthews, our incredible editor, and to Steph Pippage, who keeps us going in social media and marketing. Thanks to them and thanks to you for listening. My name is Jules Hamilton and I'm inviting you out into the world to go on, keep it good 